started. Uh, like I said, I am uh, in the church planting residency, and we are in the process of planting a church in Rollsville, and that church is called Exchange Church. And uh, the premise behind the name Exchange Church is basically right in the center of the gospel is the picture of um, God exchanging his son for our sin so that we then can exchange our lives for his glory. So it's this kind of double exchange kind of thing happening there. And uh, so we landed on exchange. And uh, basically where we're at at that point, it's been about a year of praying and preparation for that. And we are um, hoping in our, our plan, again, this is our plan, so you know how that goes. Uh, we're hoping to begin meeting as an actual church in June, and then uh, hopefully to be in Rollsville in September, um, trying to reach that community for Christ. So um, one thing I must say as we get started and just as we talk about church planting is that we are incredibly desperate as church planners, as a church, exchange church. Uh, we are incredibly desperate for the prayers of every person in this room. Um, we greatly need each other, and uh, we greatly need the king who is good and mighty uh, to show up and do that which we can never, ever do. So, uh, one quick story I w- I'd like to share. Um, let me say this really quick. Uh, just in regards to Exchange Church, you might see just on the bulletin there's um, a little bit of information there about my email and uh, Brian's email, and there's a website which we're trying to get together. So, um, you can visit there um, later this afternoon. Not right now, not on your smartphone, later, okay? And you can read a little bit more about it, but if you've been praying toward that end and you'd like to talk some more about Exchange Church and what that might look like for you, uh, we would love to talk and uh, see if Northwake can send you out as missionaries and into Rollsville. So, um, one quick story that's been really exciting for us as we've gotten uh, this church planning thing kind of rolling is the Lord has assembled this team that uh, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I sit around the table and we have meetings and stuff and um, I'm like, do I really get to like help lead this group? Like it's incredibly humbling. They're just a phenomenal group of, we got about eight couples or so right, right now and uh, some others that are kind of interested and um, but one couple in particular that I didn't know a year and a half ago but now I've uh, grown to know really, really well um, is a couple named Graham and Susan Michael. How many of y'all know Graham and Susan Michael? Are Graham and Susan Michael here this morning? Hey, hey guys. Um, I asked them if I could share this story, so it's okay. But a couple weeks ago, uh, we were having a meeting, and we were talking about being a people who are desperate for prayer and uh, just being desperate in a life of prayer. And we got to the end of our meeting, and um, Graham and Susan have... Uh, two 15-month-old little girls. They're twins, okay? And they're adorable, and uh, I want to babysit them. So uh, whenever we can make that happen, let's make it happen. But they are adorable. But with 15-month-olds, uh, they uh, have a hard time sleeping at times, as some, most of y'all know with, uh, with kids. And so with that time has come just some difficulty for them of trying to figure out, hey, how does that work? They sleep in the same room. If one wakes up, it wakes up the other. And um, do we buy a bigger house and just put them on opposite ends of the house? I'm not sure. So with those 15 months, they've just had some difficulty getting those, those girls to sleep, which means mom and dad don't get to sleep much either. So 
uh, they were sharing with us that night, I just asked at the end of our time, during our kind of accountability time, I just asked, so how are we enjoying the Lord? And you could tell Graham uh, specifically was pretty exhausted <laughs> just from nights after night after night of uh, not a whole lot of sleep. And he just said, it's been really hard. It's been really hard at this point uh, to really find time or to really just enjoy the Lord when I don't even feel like I'm in thinking straight because I just haven't slept. And, and they said, really, for the past 15 months, we really haven't had a full night's sleep. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine 15 months not having a full night's sleep. And, um, and so at that point, as the leader of this, this group, do I say, well, okay, most of us in here have had kids. Let's, let's come up with some, some strategies for, for them. Let's pull out baby wise and let's tell them what they're supposed to do. Okay, because they just listen to us because we've figured it out. We've nailed this thing. And just listen to us and they will do what we say. And instead of that, I just decided, you know what? Why don't we just pray? Why don't we just shut this thing down and let's just pray for this couple. And let's just pray that these little girls, these sweet little girls, would just sleep tonight. Okay, let's just pray to the good and mighty king that he would allow them to sleep and then allowing mom and dad to sleep as well. And I don't know how these things work. But uh, we, we prayed, and then um, about 24 hours later, I get an email. Our team gets an email from Graham, and it says this. It says, it was 5 o'clock this morning when I realized the girls hadn't woken up yet. They slept a solid 10 and a half hours. When I told Susan <laughs> uh, what time it was, she said that in that moment, she had this image of us washing up on shore, kissing the ground after a long time at sea. <laughs> Dramatic, but apt. That's what he said. Um, there really is no other explanation besides God graciously answering your prayers for our family. We had not done anything differently, really. We're fully convinced that the difference maker was prayer, specifically your prayers. This has been a wonderful and beautiful journey with, with the girls, but like all things, <clears throat> they have not been without challenges. We believe that the Lord has used those challenges to draw us deeper into him. That has been a sweet reality and has taught us much about our need for him in everything. But to be honest, it hasn't been until recently that we have allowed those challenges to draw us deeper into community. We have been desperate for our prayer. We have been desperate in our prayers to God, but have not been desperate in the prayers of his saints. I believe God is teaching us that as we find strength in Christ, we must also find his strength in his body where his saint where his spirits dwell, or his spirit dwells. Why we have been hindered to do this um, is that it is humbling to share our burdens. In my pride, I want people to think that we have it all together. Well, we don't. We need prayer. We need encouragement. So thanks for loving us. Thanks for sharing our burdens. Thanks for faithfully praying for us. Continue to pray for us as we'll continually pray for you. Grace and peace, Graham and Susan. I don't know how these things work. You know, I don't know how. And as far as I know, the girls are still sleeping through the night. <laughs> I'm not saying, like, come to Exchange Church and we'll heal your babies. That's, like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. But maybe, no. Um, what I am saying is that we want to be a place, we want to be a people, North Wake, Exchange Church, City of Oaks Church. We want to be churches that are desperate for him to show up. 
and him to do what we could never, ever do, and that he would work in spite of and maybe because of our, our parenting. Um, so it's just been a really cool story for us to think through as we've kind of been pro- processing church planning and what it's going to look like for us moving down the road. We kind of turned a corner that, that night. Um, and so this, this year at North Wake, as we're working through the book of Matthew, the theme is drawing near to the good and mighty king. Drawing near to the good and mighty king. And what I'd like to talk about today in this passage in Matthew 9 is the idea of knowing that he is mighty, but is he good? Is God really good? Is Christ really good in the midst of times where I'm not getting sleep and things seem to be falling apart and I'm hurting? Is he really good? Is this a good king? Um, We draw near to that which we are desperate for. So this morning I want to draw near to the good and mighty king. And as a group, as a body here, let's draw near to this good and mighty king. Uh, Larry said a couple weeks ago that Jesus enters into uh, the picture as we look at these healings. He enters into their picture and heals them to show, to show them what he is like and then to show them what life is like when they are near him. So for us, let's look at what he's like and then let's look at what life is like when he is near We're going to be in Matthew 9. Let's, let's pray before we approach the word. Father, uh, thank you that your word is enough for us this morning. God, may it be enough for us that we catch a beautiful glimpse of your uh, might and a beautiful glimpse of your goodness to us. May you turn, look at us, and give us hope. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Matthew 9, we're going to start in verse uh, 18. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing, 18 through 34, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of pick up little uh, snippets here here and there. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two men, two blind men, followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never has anything like this, um, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. 
So a bunch of different stories there, a bunch of different people that were introduced to who had some type of intimate encounter with this good and mighty king and uh, had healing as a result of that. What I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of walk through each of these uh, different stories, each of these different people that we, we encounter along Jesus' road, um, along Jesus' mission. And let's, uh, let's find ourselves in these people. But let's magnify the picture of how Christ interacts and how Christ deals with these people. And then a lot of application will flow out of that. The first one, uh, verse 18 and 19. We're just going to take a couple verses at a time. <clears throat> While he was saying these things to them, Behold, the ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples. So what we have here is we have a picture. There's a guy named, named Jairus. And Jairus, we learn his name over in the book of Mark. Um, but Jairus was a man who held a high position as a ruler in the synagogue. Okay, so you've got this really, really high and mighty person who his moment of desperation, the desperation is his, his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, which we learn about in Mark as well, she's 12 years old. This girl that he has watched grow up is now dead. Okay? Uh, some of the other gospels that says she was dying, but basically the point here is that she is dying to the point of death. She's dead. Okay? And, um, but his moment of desperation has brought him into a perfect posture. Where do we find him? It says, the ruler came in and knelt before him, saying what he said. So this ruler, this high and mighty person, is in a perfect posture, which is kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Kneeling at the feet, at the feet of Jesus, just like he's asking, Jesus, can these 15-month-old girls sleep through the night? A little bit more extreme than that, though. My daughter's dead. Okay, she's, she's dead. And so, um, <laughs> and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So clearly Jesus is saying, I can take care of that. I'm going to take care of that. Um, and so Matthew's point here is that Jesus has authority over death. And that's pretty extreme. I think we, we've read this so many times, we may miss the gravity of that, that Jesus is saying, I have authority over death. So I'm going to go and I'm going to raise this little girl from the dead. I'm not just going to go and mourn with you. I'm going to go raise her from the dead. But I want you to notice the faith of her dad, Jairus. Um, you see a lot just in one little, little word here in Scripture. Don't miss the tiny little words in Scripture. <clears throat> he says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Just that little word, but. He says, Here's the situation, and you can fill in whatever your thing is right here in your life right now. Here's a situation that I just cannot see past. It is a thing that is right here in front of my face. Here's this, but Jesus. This, comma, but you, Jesus. Do you have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of faith? I don't know what else to do, but Jesus, you have authority over death. Death has touched my daughter, but you come, you touch her, and everything will change. 
Incredible faith. So at this point, this dad understands that the king is mighty, okay? He understands the king is mighty. So let's hit pause on that story. Um, and we're gonna jump into this next story, verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Now, think about this. Jesus is on the way to go raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Okay, he's not going to like give her Robitussin or give her a Band-Aid. He's going to raise her from the dead. The, the, the mourners are already at her house playing the flute and singing songs mourning over her death. And Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. And then this woman out of nowhere who'd been suffering for 12 years comes up behind him and touches the edge of his cloak. Um, just think about that. Put yourself in her shoes for a little while. She'd suffered for 12 years. Imagine that, 2001. What were, what were you doing in 2001? I got married in 2002. So 12 years. Think, think about from 2001 until this morning, every day you wake up with incredible physical suffering. Every single day. The first thought in your mind is, oh, I feel it again. There it is again. Why? Why me? So she's suffering physically. Um, this is some issue with bleeding. Uh, some people think perhaps it was a uh, tumor in her uterus or some type of bleeding from the womb. Um, and she had been to doctor after doctor after doctor, which we learn in, in Mark's account of this. And it says, after going to all these doctors, she was only made worse. How many of y'all have had an experience like that where you've had some issue, you go to doctor after doctor after doctor, and you're like, this, all I'm doing is just flushing money down the toilet. So you can connect with her here. Oh, but just the daily misery, she wakes up, it's still there. So financially, she's suffering, okay? Um, another passage, it says she had spent all of her money, all of her money on doctors. A lot of us may feel like that at times. Um, and she stumped the doctors. Nobody wants to stump the doctors. Uh, I know somebody that stumps doctors a lot. <laughs> um, and it's a terrible feeling. It's like, well, I went to the people that are supposedly experts on it, and they don't know what this is. So I'll just go to somebody else. I'll give them some more money. So she's physically suffering, financially suffering. She has nothing left. Um, in fact, the healings or the, the uh, remedies for this are very bizarre. Uh, one source I read said that the Jewish Talmud prescribed 11 different cures for, for this. Here's two really obscure ones. They said, if you had an issue of bleeding, here's what you should do. Carry around an ostrich egg in a linen bag during the summer. Like, what, what is that? What does that mean? Like, nobody wants their doctor to say that. Like, I don't know what to do. Well, here's an ostrich egg. You're like, I think they're making this up, you know? Uh, and then in the, in the winter, you've got to carry it around a cotton bag. I don't know. Another uh, remedy for that was to carry around a barley corn kernel that has been found in the dung of a white female donkey. What? Who comes up with this stuff? It's kind of superstition here. 
But there's times where you may have left a doctor's office and you kind of felt like that, where you have this ostrich egg that you're walking with, and you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. So, but just imagine the doctor saying that to you. And even Luke, which is funny, because in Luke's account of this, Luke is a doctor, and Luke says uh, her issue could not be healed. So he's trying to kind of preserve the integrity of doctors, I guess, um, which is kind of funny. But, so she's got physical suffering, she's got financial suffering, but it's the social suffering that's just brutal. It's brutal. She's an outcast. This issue was really second only to leprosy, where nobody could touch her. Okay, she was considered unclean. She couldn't do this. She couldn't come in a place like this and worship. She can't go to the temple because she's not clean. 12 years, 12 years not getting to go worship. She maybe couldn't get married, most likely. Um, she couldn't be touched by anybody. Her only physical touch was by the hands of doctors. Her only social contact was doctors. Nobody wants to talk to her. Nobody calls her by her name. Nobody's hanging out with the girl who carries the ostrich egg. Okay? Nobody's going to pick her on the kickball team. Just not going to happen. Um, Think about her so-called love languages at this point. She has no physical touch. She has no quality time. She has no words of affirmation from anybody. She has no gifts, no acts of service, no love languages. And maybe, maybe the point is that she doesn't first and foremost need that. Maybe the point of the story is first and foremost, she needs an encounter with Jesus. She needs the good and mighty king. And I just think about, even in my own head, and even probably in a lot of heads right now, you're thinking, man, of those five things, I, I, I want some more of that. Physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, and acts of service, and those are great things. But I'm not sure if it's foremost. It's not foremost what she needed. So her desperation drives her to Jesus with great faith. Just, just look at what she says. She says, if I only touch his garment, it will be... I will be made well. If I only touch his garment. So she has great faith that she doesn't even need to be like, it's kind of like long distance healing a little bit. Um, but even in that moment of great faith, she hides behind the crowd and only touches part of him. See, in the story, the crowds are pressing in around Jesus and she just sort of, she just kind of hopes that she can slip through and maybe touch him and then back out and get what she wants from Jesus without actually encountering Jesus. You see yourself there a little bit? We want what we can get from Jesus, not necessarily wanting Jesus. At this point, she believes in his might, but she questions his goodness. And look what the good and mighty king does right here. This is just a beautiful Beautiful verse. And I don't, want you to, I don't want you to miss these really important verbs here. Verse 22 says, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. So he does a couple things there. He turns, he sees, and he says. All right, so let's just zoom in here on the hero of the story. We spent a lot of time on this woman, but let's zoom in on Jesus, the hero of this story. <clears throat> Jesus turned. This is the king of the universe who's on mission, going on his way to heal a little girl. 
right? A 12-year-old girl. Let's not forget that. And so the dad is sort of walking with her too, and the disciples are following, and then he feels this person touch him, and Jesus, who's on mission, stops, pivots, turns in eye contact, sees her. That's really important. Okay, it's really important that this incarnational sort of moment, just a reminder of the whole story of Jesus coming into our world, coming out of heaven into our world at Christmas to say, I'm, I'm here with you, I see you. So he sees her, okay? And picture, think what she's thinking. Nobody sees me. Nobody pays attention to me. 12 years, no social contact. But this one, this man is giving me attention. And then he does some, something that's absolutely incredible. Not only does he turn and see her, but he says, take heart, daughter. Matthew calls her woman. I don't know what everybody else called her, but they sure didn't call her daughter. That is an incredibly affectionate term for Jesus to call her daughter. And I just wrote down here, the world in passing may call you a loser or gross or worthless or failure. That may be the things you say to the mirror every morning. But Jesus looks at you and calls you something entirely intimately different. He looks at you, sees you, and says, son, daughter, your faith in my authority has made you well. So remember this, the dad is following along with, with Jesus. So in this moment, the dad believes in the might of Jesus, but the dad still needs a demonstration of the goodness of Jesus, right? So in this moment, his daughter's dead, okay? And so he's kind of like, I don't, I guess, you know, let's, let's get a little pep in your step, Jesus. Let's get, get going because I want you to come heal my daughter. But Jesus stops and he does this thing and then he calls, calls this girl daughter. And I just wonder what the dad must have been thinking at that point. It's like, man, it's so incredible that he would stop with this nameless person and just call her daughter. This is a good king, He's extremely compassionate. This is the one who's going to my house to heal my daughter, the daughter that I love. And he loves that woman like I love my daughter. He's mighty and he's incredibly, incredibly good. So in our context here, uh, there's a couple different ways. Let's just kind of put this in our, in our world. Uh, there's a couple different ways I believe that we approach Jesus, Okay. Uh, and we'll, we see this a little bit in the story with this woman. <clears throat> the one approach is we approach Jesus at a distance. We're too ashamed to let him see all that we are. Okay, we say, I, I've been struggling with this thing. I've got this uh, blood issue. I'm really, it's kind of gross. I don't want Jesus to see my, my grossness. I don't want Jesus to see really what's in here. So maybe if I could just get something from him, I could just get his healing, but still get my healing, but still hide from him. And maybe that's our approach. Maybe that's some of our approaches here, even on Sunday morning. Let me come in, hide in the crowd, check a box, get my thing from Jesus, and slip out, never actually encountering 
Jesus. Um, another way that I think is probably a little more prevalent the way we approach Jesus is we try to impress him. We try to come to him and earn his love and his attention. And we say, Jesus, look, it's me. Look at this. Look what I've done for you. I've got, I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, I have two boys and then a daughter. And it has, been, <laughs> it has been this explosion of pink and sparkles in my world that I was not ready for. But one day I'm, uh, I'm working uh, at the house, and I'm up by my desk, and I'm doing really important stuff, you know. And I see this little head kind of look around the corner of the room, and it's Haley. That's my three-year-old girl. And uh, she's just, she's 110% girl. And so she just kind of looks in, you know. I'm like, all right, you know, just I'll play with you later. I got stuff to do. You know, that's what my brain was thinking. And a couple other times, she looks around, kind of like, it's like, oh, gracious, you know. And I basically ignored her. And I hear some kind of rummaging around in the hall closet and where, where we have a costume box. And um, I hear her putting on this costume. And she comes to the door. She just kind of steps out, and she's wearing this little Cinderella dress. And she says, Daddy, do you want to be with me? It's like, what do you say? You know, you say, like, no, I'm on Facebook. Let me alone. Like, no. Like, no, cancel all my friends. You're my only friend, you know. I want you. And so, uh, but I just, I was like, that's a sweet moment. But then I realized, man, she thought in that moment that she wasn't enough for me. So she went to the goofy costume box and got a princess outfit and put it on to say, here I am. Do you accept me now? What a shame. What a shame for us to approach Jesus the one who went to the cross because of nothing that we did gave it all for us and act like we can approach him and earn any of his favor. And I think he has a word for us today. He has a word for you, he has a word for me, he has a word for this woman. Just in that look of Jesus. And you think about the look of Jesus. Man, that look of Jesus. You think about the look of Jesus on the cross where he looks at the thief and he gives him life, life eternal. Today you will be with me in paradise. That look when he looks at Peter and he says, who do, who do you say that I am? Peter? And we've all had those moments where he looks at you and he asks you a pointed question and you have to answer him. But that look of Jesus where he looks at this woman and is almost summed up in this look where he says, just a simple phrase, he just says, I know. I know that your 15-month-old will not sleep. I know who you are. To this woman, I know all about the last 12 years. I know all about those 4,000 plus 
days that you've woken up in physical pain and frustration. I know all about the fact that nobody on this earth wants to be your friend. I know all about that nobody calls you by your name. I know all about your bank account, that there's nothing there. and You don't know how there's gonna be anything there. I know what the doctors have said. I know no one hugs you, and yet you long to be hugged by someone. He says, you don't need to hide anymore. Why are you hiding from me? You don't need to get dressed up in some silly Cinderella dress for me to draw near to you. You don't need to do that. Tim Keller says that performance in the Christian life does not precede verdict. Verdict precedes performance. And Jesus is saying to this woman, here's here's your verdict. Take heart, daughter. Here's your verdict. You're my daughter. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what I have done, you're my son. I have adopted you. You did not ask to be adopted. I adopted you out of my good pleasure. And you're now my daughter. And what else is amazing is that you are worth my attention. You're worth my focus. You're worth my affection. Because I say so. So this morning, it just might be one of those things where, man, you just need to see the look of Jesus. You just need to hear him say, stop trying so hard. You're exhausted. Breathe again in my grace. Come up for water. Breathe again. You're my son. You're my daughter. And your faith in my authority has made you well. Nobody else wants you, but I do. I think sometimes we just have to approach Jesus and say, this is all I'm bringing to the table. This is all I got, Jesus, and it doesn't look very good. Just me and my ostrich egg. It's all I got. And that's exactly what he wants from you. Doesn't want your dress. Doesn't want your glass slipper. He wants you and all your messed up mess so that he can be the hero. He can be the rescuer, not you. So do you need this good king to turn to you this morning, see you and say, I know. I know all about what you did before you met me. I know what you think when you look in the mirror. I know you think you are not good enough. I know what you want everybody else to think about you. I know the kids are wearing you out. I know you need rest and sleep. I know about that thing that you're trying to hide. I know the dresses that you wear to to impress me. I know you're exhausted. I know about the way you and your spouse fight. I know all about what happened this morning before you left the house to get here. I know all about what happened last night. I know all about what awaits you at work and school tomorrow. I know about all that. And that's why I'm here, to let you know that I know and I see you, and I care, and I will draw near to you. But what I really want you to know, (laughs) what Jesus says, what I I really want you to know is where I'm going. I'm going to heal this girl, and after I go heal the girl, I'm gonna do lots of other things, and after that, I'm gonna take 
your 12 years of suffering and I'm gonna take your current suffering and I'm gonna take your opinion of yourself and I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna put it on my shoulders and they're gonna nail me to a cross. And there on that cross, I'm going to die like this dead girl I'm going to save, going to raise from the dead. And then I'm gonna take all that, that burden that I took off of you onto me and I'm gonna cancel it out. And there will be a day where there will be zero tears. There will be zero pain. There will be only celebration and worship of what I've done for you. That's why I'm here in this moment. That's what I want you to know. So she underestimated the compassion of Jesus. She thought that he was mighty, but was not fully convinced of his goodness. And then she sees his goodness as he interacts with her. I want you to see the goodness of this king this morning. Unpause, back in verse uh, 22. Or 23, sorry. Um, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And so here, Again, we've got this 12-year-old daughter who's dead. Okay, we learned from Luke's passage that she's 12 years old. Um, and there's these professional mourners who are there, and they're mourning the death, meaning she's, she's already dead, okay, and she's been dead for a little while. And so she's in this casket, I assume, and uh, we learn a few things about Jesus because he goes in and he removes the mourners. He said, get out of here. This isn't a time for mourning. This is a time to watch me do what I'm going to do. But Jesus is not in this for show. Jesus never does anything for show. All right, Jesus does this because there are those who have faith that have followed to watch him, and he wants to let those with faith watch him do what only he can do. And so he clears the people from away. And secondly, he shows us that his arm is not too short to save. Jesus' reach is as deep as death. His reach is as deep as death. Think about the the death, the struggle, the pain in your life. You say, I don't even want to tell anybody about that. They don't understand. They'll never be able to understand how bad it is for me. And that might be true. But for Jesus, it's never too deep. Death is not too deep for Jesus' touch. Jesus touches death. It says he, um, after he cleared the flute players in the crowd, made a commotion, um, and he said, um, the girl's not dead but sleeping. They laugh at him. He went in, took her by the hand, and the girl rose. He touches death. People weren't allowed to touch death. Makes them unclean. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus can do that. Okay. A thought here, a question here is this. Um, what does this girl bring to the table? Our theme is drawing near to the good and mighty king. Did this girl, this dead girl, draw near to the good and mighty king? No. She brought nothing to the table except her death. And Jesus steps in. Jesus draws near. The good and mighty king draws near and touches her and raises her from the dead. And I think that's important. I think that's greatly important for us to remember that this good and mighty king 
does not only have power over physical death, but spiritual death as well. Praise God that he has authority and power over death. For us in this room, who were once, Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses, but have been made because of his great love for us, have been made alive in Christ. We were dead. We were in a pit. We could do nothing to get ourselves out. God lowers his son in the pit to put us on his shoulders and to carry us out. That's that which we can never do and bring us back to life. Last week, Larry mentioned 20 different reasons why the resurrection is important. It is important for us, for those believers in this room, um, to think about how he has rescued us from spiritual death on a daily basis, to think about that um, and praise him. Praise him that his, that his um, reach is not too short. Uh, David Platt, when preaching this passage, he says this. He says, that's good to know that Jesus has authority over death. It just makes sense, right, for him to have authority over disease, disasters, demons. He's the one who severs the root of all suffering and has authority over sin. It only makes sense that he has authority over death itself, an authority that will be all the more evident chapters later when he goes to the cross and he dies there. He doesn't just take a nap, he dies. And for three days, his heart is flatlined. And after three days of flatlining, Jesus comes to life on his own authority. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own authority. I chose this. I have authority to pick it right back up again. And he does. He rises from the grave. And he goes on to say, to say this. He says, HIV AIDS does not have the last word. Cancer does not have the last word. Parkinson's does not have the last word. Alzheimer's will never have the last word. Death will never have the last word. Jesus always has the last word. He has shown us he has and is the last word with the resurrection from the grave. He is good and he sure is mighty. A couple more stories. Verse 28, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And he said to them, and they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And this term here of crying out, it's actually the same word that's used of Jesus when he cries out on the cross. So it's this intense moment of desperation where these blind men cannot see and they're begging this son of David, which means they knew he was Messiah. They're begging him for mercy. They know who they are and they know who he is. And they know we are not, but he is. So I'm going to beg this one for mercy. So Jesus enters the house. They follow him and he asks them an incredibly poignant question. Again, it's that look of Jesus where he looks at him and he says, I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to hear you say it. Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. There's something important about Jesus just making them say it. They have to say it, I don't know. But he says, I just want to hear you say it. 
And then what happens is Jesus touches their eyes and he gives them sight. So here's the question. What's the first thing these two guys see? Fingers moving away from their eyes and they see Jesus. This is what I would call worship at first sight. Think about that. The very first thing you ever see is Jesus face to face. Jesus. Good news. I'm not living forever. When I die, not if I die, when I die, because of what he has done on my behalf, the very first thing I will see is Jesus, the risen king. And it will be worship at first sight. And everybody in this room who has placed their faith in him and say, Jesus is Lord of my life, we will experience worship at first sight together. First thing they see is Jesus. Um, I can't help but notice here that Jesus tells them not to say anything about it. It's kind of bizarre. Um, He sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. But what do they do? They went away and they spread his fame. It's crazy to me to think that these guys, I mean, you got the king of kings here, and he says, don't do this, and they turn and they do it. Don't say anything about me, and then they go and they say it. And then he gives a great commission to us. He says, go tell about me, and we don't. And I think there's a connection here. I think perhaps it has something to do with their beholding the good and mighty king face to face. They just can't help but spread his fame. Maybe we're too famous. Maybe we're too busy talking about ourselves. Think about the picture of heaven, where Jesus is the centerpiece of heaven, and all peoples will be gathered around the throne. And they sing of him because they're staring at him. We sing of him because we stare at him. We speak of him because we stare at him. If you want to be a good evangelist, a good missionary, a good church planter, a good husband, a good wife, a good dad, mom, brother, sister, son, daughter, boyfriend, girlfriend, grandparent, behold the good and mighty king. Our beholding him will cause us to live a different life. Illustration I would use on this is like July 4th, you're at a fireworks display and you're getting ready for it, the sky's dark, everybody's sitting there waiting and this little boy runs across with a sparkler. And you're like, oh look, all the eyes are drawn to the sparkler as he runs by, another kid runs by with a sparkler and we look at the sparklers and right at that point, this explosion of fireworks. Well, what fool would keep watching the little boy with the sparkler? In our world, there's so many sparklers that we just watch. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This is the main deal. This is the big deal. Eyes up. This is what's really happening. Take your eyes off this. Set your eyes on things above. I think when Jesus says, come follow me, sometimes we wrestle with the follow or the coming and the following. What does that look like? Um, But we gotta wrap our minds around the me. I think it's not until we behold the me that then we're willing to come and follow. Is the me worth it? 
Until the me is worth it, the coming and following will never, ever, ever be worth it. Let's not be dazzled by anything else but Christ. Last story. Um, and then we're done. <clears throat> As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. We don't have a whole lot of detail here, but we, but we do know that uh, Matthew is making the point that Jesus has authority over demons. Okay? And then the Pharisees say some ridiculous thing at the end that says, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That doesn't even make sense. Why would the prince of demons cast out demons? It doesn't make sense. That's like when you're in, when, when you're, when you're in an argument and somebody says, well, uh, you're ugly. It's like, what? That doesn't make sense. So it's just a, just a bad argument there. The point is that he has authority over demons. So what, what I want to do is I just want to place ourselves in this story, and we'll finish up here. Um, think about this mute man for a little bit. It doesn't say what he says. It just says he spoke when he was healed. Imagine being mute, never speaking, and then you're made able to speak. Um, a couple of years ago, I was a youth pastor, and I had the opportunity to take our students on a trip to uh, Missouri to a camp called Camp Barnabas. And basically what this was, it was a special needs camp. And so kids with all varying sorts of disabilities show up to this camp, and they have a real, like, normal uh, camp experience just with some special needs um, adaptations to it. And so what I did is I brought high schoolers, and those high schoolers would be buddied up with a particular special needs kid for six days straight. So what happens is they're with that kid, and they have to do everything that that kid uh, demands of them for six days straight, 24 hours a day. And it was kind of a risky move, but I just believed in my heart it was the right thing for this, for my group of students to, to do, to learn dependency on him, to learn that they can't just, they can't just um, bank on their own ability to be able to do this, but they had to trust and lean and depend on the Lord uh, to get them through it. And I remember, I mean, there were some situations where uh, there were some kids that were buddied up with some of my students that I was like, oh boy, <laughs> this is going to be interesting how this plays out. What it's going to look like for this kid who comes to be served all the time. They didn't come to serve. And so uh, it was like second day, I remember one kid literally said to me, one of my students, high schoolers, literally said to me, I hate you for bringing us here. I was like, that's great. (laughs) That's awesome. That's why you're here, you know. But I had this one kid named, named Kent who was uh, about 16 at the time, and Kent was sort of a soft-spoken guy, but just a heart of gold. And Kent was buddied up with a, a boy named Robbie. And Robbie was uh, about 14, I think, and Robbie was bigger than Kent, this big, big boy. And uh, Robbie was in a wheelchair, this clunky kind of re- wheel, wheelchair, and he, uh, he could not speak. He was mute. And he... Um, could not bathe himself, could not dress himself, could not feed himself. So for a week, I got to watch Kent, a 16-year-old kid from a privileged family, at every meal, feed this 14-year-old wearing a bib and push him around up these hills on this wheelchair, this clunky wheelchair, all week long. I remember one day sitting there at dinner, and I just, I mean, it was lunch, but looking at, at Robbie and just thinking, man, what would Robbie say to Kent if he could? 
You see, at the end of the week, he never said thank you to Kent for all that. Not once did he say thank you because he could not. The question this morning for us is, if we were mute and made to speak, what might we say to the one who gave us a voice? If we were dead and brought to life, what might we say to the one who gave us a heartbeat? If we were destined for the wrath of God, but rescued by the sheer grace of God, what might we say to this rescuer? What might we say today to this good and mighty king who turns, sees, and saves? I'd just close out our time with, I think, just one song. Um, If the worship team could come up, um, we're just going to do one song, and it's, um, what we're going to do is, I just want to give you guys um, a chance to respond to who he is, and, um, and give you a chance to speak, give you a chance to say something. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of open up the front here, and, um, and I just want you to come. We're not, we're not taking names of who comes down here in the front. You're not more spiritual than anybody else. Uh, you can stay in your seat, but I think there's something the Lord wants to say or wants you to say to him today. Maybe you were rescued a long time ago and you just haven't said thank you in a long time. Uh, he's been pushing your wheelchair around and feeding you for years, and you just have not said thank you for being my healer. Thank you for being my rescuer. Maybe you've never uttered any words, maybe you've never uttered any words to Jesus as king. Maybe you're in this strange building today and you don't know how you got here. Maybe you came with somebody else and you're like, this church thing, I don't know. Um, but Jesus has turned to you this morning. He's looked at you and said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. Maybe today you just trust him to rescue you from yourself. Um, if you want to do that, somebody would be more than willing to want to come down and speak with you and talk with you. Maybe today you need healing. Maybe you need to gather some elders around you and just pray for healing. Um, Maybe you need to come down and tell him that you trust him with that thing. That thing. You know? You know that that thing? You know? (laughs) That thing? Maybe you tell him you trust him with that, that thing that nobody else knows about. Maybe you need to stop hiding in the crowd and simply draw near Maybe you just need to say to Jesus, I know you already know, but I just have to say it. Just have to say that I trust you. I just have to accept your love. Um, Maybe you are more like me and you just have to come down here and just stop talking. Maybe you need Jesus to mute you. Say, just stop talking. Just crawl off my lap. Stop talking for once. Stop putting on your Cinderella dress. Stop trying to impress me. I just want to love you. I want to tell you that I know. He's not impressed by our performance. He wants to love us in spite of us. Maybe you need to just bring your nothing to him this morning so he can give you his everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you extend this invitation to be loved by you and to see that you are good and to see that you are mighty God, I pray that we would put down the walls that we've built up this morning and we would approach you for who you are. 
make us real with you this morning, God. That's why you've brought us into this place at this moment. Bring us to your feet, Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray, amen.